We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome, everybody. This is the 8020 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Hey, great to have you all here. We got a 25 minute today, and I'm packing it full of a lot of good things I think that are really going to help you guys, you coaches, youth coaches, even advanced coaches and parents. Let's get right into it. First, I want to say thank you to all of you coaches for what you do. Thank you for all that you do, all the energy and the time that you donate, that you give. And many of you youth coaches, most of you youth coaches aren't getting paid anything. You're getting paid with the, a reward of positivity and the time probably with your kid, but also just that reward of giving back and helping the community, the, the baseball community, and just the community in general, and really kind of helping the world moving forward with this next wave of kids that's, that are going to become adults before we know it. And so thank you for the time that you donate and thank you for the energy that you give. Keep it going. It's a phenomenal place to make a huge impact in the world, in the youth sports community, and in particular, the baseball community, the youth baseball community. Thank you guys so much for guiding this next wave of what's going to make up the next wave of adults in our world and and have an impact on our society. And it really can be super beneficial. So thank you for what you do. Thank you. So I moved up to Boise in January and I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm up here in the hills, like 15 minutes north of downtown Boise. I love it. I'm in a great community. There's a, it's not rural. There's a lot of homes. There's so many. The, the community I'm in is packed and kids. In fact, there's kids playing baseball at the park and it's just, I love it up here. I'm just having a blast. The fall is coming around. I grew up in Southern California and I did travel around a lot, especially in the summer, but I never spent a fall. And a lot of you won't be able to relate to this because you live in areas where the fall is so beautiful. I missed that and I never had that. And Southern California has phenomenal weather, but one thing it does not have is beautiful falls. And so to be able to see these trees turning red, vibrant red, and the leaves falling off, it's pretty awesome. And so I'm up here in Boise and we're loving it. And last night I went out to dinner with my wife and our kid and ran into my high school baseball coach. Now he was basically the co-head coach. He wasn't technically the head coach. He was technically an assistant coach. And I told you, I, I gave a shout out to the other assistant coach, Coach Jeff Patterson who's worked his way up and, and, and is a very successful scout with the Yankees. In fact, I did tell you that he was the one who drafted Garrett Cole along with the Yankees, and he was a massive part of that, of drafting Garrett Cole out of high school, and he saw the potential very early on, years ago. Um, the Yankees obviously didn't sign him at that time. He went to UCLA and whatnot, but that was the pitching coach and one of the assistants, but the other assistant coach, who was kind of a co-head coach, was Coach Domini, and I ran into him last night at a restaurant about 15 minutes from my house. He has moved up here to Boise also. And I believe he's a native Southern California person. And so he lived there forever and ever. And he's moved up here and his son lives up here and he coaches up here. And I played with his son, Colin, and we played from like 10 year old, maybe 10 U, what they didn't call 10 U, Little League, all the way, like Little League majors all the way through the end of high school. So like eight years, my dad coached my team and Colin's team. And then Coach Domini took over. Uh, of course, when I got to high school, he was a huge part of that team. And then, in fact, my high school, when Coach Domini was there well before I got there, they won the national title, the USA Today national title, high school national title in 1986. So they had a lot of success. They won the Southern California Championship three times while he was there. And Coach Curran was the head coach, and he's a Hall of Fame coach and one of the winningest coaches in Southern California history. And Coach Domini, it was just a blast to see him. I ran into him. I walked in the restaurant, this little kind of small restaurant, kind of off the beaten path. And, and there he was sitting there and, and with his wife. And, and I've known them forever. In fact, they 
they sold their house right around the corner from my parents who sold their house in Southern California. And we all kind of moved up here about the same time this year. So it, it was really cool to, to run into that. And I just think about those experiences that I had and the positivity that he always brought where it just really, you felt like he was a serious coach, but you knew he was never going to put you on blast and, you, and he was always polite to you. And you always looked forward to seeing him. It was always a coach that you were excited to see out there on the field. So that's the kind of coach we all want to be. So it was great to see Coach Domini. Big shout out to Coach Doug Domini. Saw him last night. That was awesome. All right. Now, before we get into part one, I'm going to really quickly clarify plan A that we've been talking about, the hitting approach, plan A. Again, it's about pitch selection. And when I say drive the ball, I want to clarify this. There was maybe a little confusion on what driving the ball may mean. And driving the ball means hitting the ball hard, whether it's through the infield, on a line drive, to the gaps, driven hard down the line, or off the wall, or over the wall. In plan A, we're looking for a ball that can be driven, and we're looking to drive it. We're not trying to drive it into the ground. We're trying to drive it a line drive and maybe a little bit of uh, some angle to it. I know this launch angle gets a lot of um, heat and a lot of bad publicity. I completely disagree with all of that. I am a fan of teaching players to drive the ball with a little bit of an angle, trying not to hit a ground ball, trying to hit line drives. And if they're not going to hit a a line drive, I'd rather them err on the side of hitting the ball at like 20 to 25 degrees. If you don't know exactly what 20, 25 degrees is on a launch angle, you'll see a go online, Google, you'll see a lot of charts. You'll see about what that means. And you'll see the percentages of of hits that come off of those angles. And you'll see the percentages of runs that those angles produce. That said, so driving the ball may mean, it doesn't necessarily mean driving a home run. It, It very well may mean driving a one hopper hard shot through the infield. You're trying to drive the ball and you're trying to get a pitch that allows you to drive the ball, not a strike. In plan A, less than two strikes. You're in plan A. You're not trying to get a pitch that's a strike just because it's a strike. You're trying to get a pitch you can drive. And of course, very well, it's going to be a strike. All right. Now, it may be, sometimes it may be a little bit above the zone. If you're watching the MLB playoffs, you're seeing some guys get some pitches that are above that vertical rectangle. So technically above the strike zone and they're driving some of those. They're not a eye level necessarily. The only guy I've seen do that all year is David Fletcher for the Angels, but that's not necessarily what you're going to go teach, but you're looking for pitches that can be driven. Typically they're strikes. And when I say driven, again, just to clarify, that may be a shot through the infield, a line drive, a ball driven to the gaps. And also to hit on something completely new to this discussion here at the 8020 Baseball Podcast, definitely not new to baseball. The question a lot of coaches have, young coaches or youth coaches have, is should I teach my players to pull the ball or go the other way? Or where should, you know, in my opinion, I think you just look for a pitch that you can drive, have good timing on it. Good timing means you're going to use the middle of the field for the most part. If you're out in front a little bit, you're still going to be able to keep it fair, but to the pull side, it's, but you're going to be able to keep it fair. If you're a little behind it, you're still going to be able to keep it fair to the opposite field side, but you're looking to drive the ball. I just don't think you should try to aim the ball gap to gap necessarily. I think where the pitch is pitched, the location of the pitch, the speed of the pitch will dictate the geometry. All right. Let the pitch location and the speed of the pitch and the timing of it take care of the geometry. What you're trying to do is square it up as best you can. You're trying to be on time as best you can. And yeah, if you can drive it right back up the middle every time, but that's not going to happen. So yeah, you obviously don't want to hit foul balls hard. That's a waste of a swing, a waste of a good pitch. You're trying to hit the ball hard between the foul lines, but I don't think you should be thinking about that. I think that'll take care of itself, especially at the youth level. All right. Part one book recommendation. You can get the audio version of it on audible. It's called Zen golf, mastering the mental game. I even got a message from uh, on Twitter from Dr. Joseph parent, who is the author. The book was written back in 2002 and Dr. Parent has written a phenomenal book on the mental game. And some of you are like, well, Zen golf, I'm coaching baseball. Yes, I get it. But here's the thing. This book is so awesome when it comes to the mental game because he has a solid understanding of the root causes of the mind, the monkey mind, being present, being in the moment. And also, 
has a solid understanding of performance and action within a sport. So he takes, uh, and when I hear Zen, Dr. Parent has a very, very, very strong understanding of how Zen works, how the beginner's mind, how to understand thoughts and the monkey mind or, you know, the excessive thoughts or negative thoughts. And he understands how that all works, which is the key to the mental game. That is the root, the root of how the mental game is derived, where negative thoughts, positive thoughts, how the mind works, excessive thinking like we talked about. Now, what he does a really good job of is tying in that Zen, understanding that concrete Zen, undeniably effective Zen teaching, the mental game, and he ties it in with golf, but, and he also has some examples of baseball in there, believe it or not, but it is a book about golf, but everything he's talking about, whether it's the swing, the approach, the planning, the preparation, it's all applicable to baseball. I used it in baseball when I was still playing professionally. This book is phenomenal. I highly recommend you read it. He reached out and he did mention something about trying to come on the podcast. So I'm trying to work something out with him. I'm hoping he can come on here because, you know, even if it's just for a quick interview, because I think he is at the top of the mental game wisdom ladder. He understands it so well from a root level. And what I see in the mental game of baseball, a lot of the teaching is really well done. And for the most part, it's on point, but it doesn't hit the root causes and the the thoughts as much the Zen part. I'm telling you the Zen stuff, I've studied the Zen for years and the Buddhist mind, the beginner's mind. I've been studying that ever since. I mean, when I first started studying coaches, the first coach I studied besides the coaches that I played for, which I was studying and observing the successful one and what I liked about him, what I thought they did great. But the first coach I actually studied and read all of his books, and that's Phil Jackson. And Phil Jackson, most of you know, his nickname is the Zen master. So when I heard, well, this guy's so successful and I heard him called the Zen master, I said, I got to know more about Zen. So I dove into it. I've been diving into it. I meditate every day. I'm a big believer in the presence and just the massive benefit. I, I believe being present, being in the moment, fully present, fully aware of what's going on with you and just fully into whatever it is you're doing is the ultimate. It's the first domino in almost every single problem or issue or benefit that can come our way in life. I really believe that it all starts and ends with being present. And I'm not going to get into that right now, but I, I'm a, just a massive fan of that. And after studying the Zen master, I got this Zen golf book. Dr. Joseph Parent in his book, Zen Golf, Mastering the Mental Game, discusses positive visualization. He talks about what not to do. He also talks about the thoughts coming in and the awareness of the thoughts. And he also gives a solid game plan. So this could be a game plan that coaches can use with their players or players can use for any sport. Baseball, absolutely. Highly recommend you go read this. And a lot of you like golf, so it'll absolutely help you. So not only will it make you a better coach for baseball players, but it's also going to make you a better golfer. I guarantee you, if you go listen to this book. I don't get paid anything for this. I'm just recommending it because I just really like the book. In fact, I'm hoping to get Dr. Parent on here, but you know, we'll see how that works out. If he does, that's awesome. And I think it'll be a, just a huge benefit for everybody to hear some of the stuff that he's got to say, but I don't make any money for this endorsement. I just believe in it. I think it's an awesome book. Zen Golf, it's a short book and uh, I know Audible has it. Go check it out. Listen to it. Listen to it a few times. And if you play golf at all or anything, I mean, this can help you with anything. The Zen Golf, Mastering the Mental Game, highly recommended by Dr. Joseph Parent. Really, really good stuff. So go check it out. Now for part two, I read an article just recently about strikeouts in the Major League Baseball and that the teams with the fewest strikeouts are in the playoffs. And it was written by Jared Diamond. Now, Jared Diamond wrote the book Swing Kings. And man, oh man, I've already given that a huge shout out on this podcast. I don't know, Jared, but I read that book and phenomenal book. Swing Kings does talk about the launch angle and the swing revolution, the launch angle revolution. It's undeniable that it works. If you're swinging and hitting pop-ups, you're never going to hit. If you're 
teaching hip pop-ups, you're hitting to teach 35, 40, 50 degrees launch angle, then that's not what this book's about. It's really talking about just getting the ball a little elevated and trying to hit the ball past the infielders as best you can because the percentages say you're going to get a lot more hit, produce a lot more runs by hitting it with a little bit of a launch angle. So Jared Diamond wrote the book, Launch Kings. I highly recommend reading that book. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of articles. I study a lot of stuff and I try only to recommend to you the one, the books, those things, those videos, those articles, those people that are the top at what they're doing or what they've done, or at least that piece of content is, I believe, at the top of the wisdom chart. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that book. Okay. Now, as much as I like that book, I completely disagree with the premise of his strikeout article that he recently wrote insofar that he took some statistics. So he took statistics that said the teams that strike out the least, that struck out the least this year are in the playoffs. So now while the major league teams that have struck out the least are in the playoffs, that is undeniable. That's true. But the message that this article is sending is that the reason these teams struck out the least is because they went up there and they just put the ball in play. It was kind of a shot. Some of the, if you look at how it was written and how the quotes were taken and putting together, in my opinion, it was a shot at teaching players to swing hard, exit velocity and whatnot. But what it left out, a huge part that I thought it left out, or at least the message that I think it conveyed was incorrect in that it gave all of the success, all of the attribution of success to these teams going up there and just putting the ball in play, which to youth coaches now are going to hear that and go, well, we got to be more protective. We got to put the ball in play. You're going to maybe swing a little less, swing a little easier, and you're going to put the ball in play more defensive, more protective. And I truly believe this is a misunderstanding of the big reason or the large part, largely why these teams struck out less pitch selection. Their pitch selection was just much better. They did not chase pitches out of the strike zone as much and that swung and they made contact and drove the balls, their pitch, the hitter's pitch more often. So they put the ball in play probably because their timing was better. They weren't out in front and they weren't behind too much. So they weren't hitting the balls foul. So they were putting the ball in play between the foul lines. It's not because they were up there swinging with less swing velocity. In my opinion, I think the message is go up there and put the ball in play. The message of the article, it's just a misinterpretation, in my opinion, of the data, or at least in a little bit of a way, it's a misinterpretation or it sends the message that teams that went, that get to the playoffs are the teams that put the ball in play. I thought it was sending a message or it sent the message that, you know, you should go up there and kind of a protective, put the ball in play mode. And really what it, it really didn't send the message, which the true message I think is the biggest message to teaching hitters to strike out less is be on time, have good timing. Okay. Now we're not getting into the timing when I talk about the hitting approach, like plan A, plan two and plan take, that is about pitch selection. So pitch selection, being on time and pitch selection. Those two things will take care of so many of your strikeout issues and putting the ball in play issues. None of it is about hitting the, or swinging less or just like poking at the ball to put it in play. You're up there like David Eckstein. If you don't remember David Eckstein, go watch David Eckstein. You only got to watch one video of him to have an understanding of what I'm talking about. And David Eckstein had a weighted runs created plus of 92. So we've talked about that stat before in one of my first episodes I did about Anthony Rendon, the weighted runs created plus is one of the best statistics available to the public, if not the best statistic available to the public for quantifying the contribution of a hitter to the team's run total. And we just recently talked about this. The only stat that counts in on offense is how many runs your team scores, not batting average, none of that. How many guys you get on base? I mean, all of that, it, yeah, factors in and there's a correlation. I get it. But all that matters to your offense is that you score runs, score runs and how many runs you score. Okay. That at the end of the day is how we judge 
judge how we're teaching swings, how we're teaching the offense, how we're coaching strategies is about how many runs it produces, not these substats. Substats are like batting average, things like that. Weighted runs created plus, it quantifies the contribution of a hitter. It quantifies how much they contributed to their team scoring runs. And his weighted runs created plus was 92. 100 is league average. 100 is league average. So my point being, you can go up there and put the ball in play. You say, oh, he's a great leadoff hitter. He doesn't strike out, but he is below league average when it came to helping his team score runs, which is the only thing that matters on offense. All right. So if you can't gather already, I just didn't agree with the premise that the, that I think if you're reading it, most coaches would have read it and said, oh, okay, we got to go up there and just put the ball in play. Especially with less than two strikes, you should not be going up there and thinking, just put the ball in play. You should never go up there with less than two strikes and think defensively at all. You are hunting your pitch. You're hunting, you're teaching your hitters to hunt a, a hitter's pitch, not the strike zone, but a hitter's pitch and a pitch that can be driven like we talked about earlier in this podcast. You're going up there, you're teaching the hitter with less than two strikes to drive a pitch and you're teaching them to swing hard at it 100% or at least no less than 90 or 95%. Ideally 100% swing. You don't want to overswing. You don't want to underswing. You want to get a good pitch that you can drive. Now the reason you get the good pitch is so you can swing well at it. You don't have to do, and again, if you get fooled on it, less than two strikes. If you get fooled on a good changeup or you're out in front of a breaking ball, especially a changeup, then just swing through it. I would teach my hitters to swing through it. Break that habit of slowing down and trying to put the ball in play with less than two strikes. I would rather them swing through it and then get to the next pitch because the pitchers do make a lot of mistakes and it's better to have one more strike on you than one more out for your team and you sitting on the bench having created that out. So Jared Diamond, phenomenal book. Thought he wrote it so well. Swing Kings, highly recommend that. We did a podcast. I I broke that down already a couple months back, but I think this article he wrote, I think the understanding that all these teams don't strike out and so this whole exit velocity and it's kind of a shot. In my opinion, it was a shot at new school coaching and teaching and I believe it was erroneous in its premise. The premise was that you need to teach the swing, the hitter to go up there and swing less violently or less aggressively or with less swing velocity, less exit velocity, yada, yada, yada watching the Dodgers, their pitch selection and these teams at in the playoffs, these successful offensive teams, their pitch selection, their pitch selection is superior. The Dodgers pitch selection and the teams that are successful, the offenses that are successful, watch their pitch selection. And at the major league level, it's hard to see the difference between the average and the elite and the below average. It's, it's very minute. But the Dodgers just do a phenomenal job for the most part, not perfect, but phenomenal job of understanding what pitches to swing at, where the strike zone is at with two strikes, and that's why they're successful. It's not because they're going up there and taking little baby hacks and they're trying to put the ball in play and protect the zone, especially with less than two strikes. So the premise of that article, in my opinion, was very flawed. And I think young coaches, if and when you're reading stuff that talks about teams that don't strike out a lot and it's because they put the ball in play, that's typically, that's really with less than two strikes, that's not the reason. It's because their pitch selection is better. It's not because they've changed their swing. It's because they've changed the pitches that they're swinging at. They're more selective and they're not chasing. All right. So that's a big, I think that's just something I see a lot more. I'm hearing it talked about on the, during the playoffs. These announcers are talking about that, and I think they're sending the wrong message in large part. All right, part three. We're going to talk about batching. This is something that we all do every day of our lives. We all batch. We all do batching. Some of you do batching, and you don't even know it. Think about this batching. A perfect example of batching is like the trash can. You have a trash can in your kitchen. Well, why don't you walk each piece of trash out to the trash can in your garage or in the backyard or on the side yard? Why don't you walk each piece of trash? 
trash out there every time. You batch it. You put it in a trash can that's smaller, and then when it's full, you do one trip out to the backyard, one trip to the side yard, one trip to the garage. That's a perfect example of batching. When you go run errands, and I think nowadays you don't need to run errands as much because everything can be delivered or everything can be paid online, auto pay, everything can be done online for the most part. But if you have to run errands, usually you batch them. Usually you save two or three errands and you try to do them all on the same trip. Batching. I live in a two-story house. I batch. I put things at the bottom of the stairs. If I'm not needing to go upstairs, if I need to take something upstairs that I have in my hand or I found something downstairs, I'll put it on the stairs off to the side on like the third step. And then if I need, if I'm not going upstairs and there's something else that needs to go upstairs, I'll put it there. And sometimes I'll have two or three things that need to go upstairs. And then when I finally need to go upstairs for something at that time, at that moment that needs to be done right then, then I take all that stuff up with me. Same coming down. Sometimes I batch things like I had my sweatshirt on for an early morning workout in the garage. I took the sweatshirt. I was upstairs. I didn't just take the sweatshirt off and go, oh, I need to go hang this in the mudroom downstairs by the garage. I just set it on the rail of the the stairs. And then after I showered and got ready, I took that downstairs. And sometimes I'll do that with empty glass that I had some water glass from the night before. I put it on the edge of the stairs, usually out of the way so it doesn't fall and it isn't dangerous, but I'm batching. So you could go, I mean, batching is everywhere in our lives. We batch all the time. And something that is very useful when it comes to training and baseball practices is batching, is batching. Once the players have their bats out, once the players have their helmets on, once they have their gloves with them, you want to keep things kind of organized in a way that they don't have to run over and grab different gear. You're batching your drills together. You're batching your drills together to be more efficient. If you're going to go use the batting cages during practice, don't send them over for one batting cage drill or one batting practice drill in the cages and then bring them back to the field, the main diamond or whatnot, and then send them back to the cages later. Get all their work done, batch it all, all their cage work done at one time, and then bring them back. You want to batch your work as best as possible. Catchers putting their gear on, all right? Catchers putting the gear on. A lot of catchers are quick with it, but once they have their gear on, try to go through as much of their drills as they can with that gear on, all right? Batch things. There's a lot of ways to bat. I'm a huge fan of having four full buckets of baseballs. I think if you have a team of 12, each player donates or buys and purchases for the team, for the whole team, the collective whole, they buy 24 baseballs, two dozen. You have four full buckets of baseballs. You have four empty buckets and you take those to every practice. You have four full buckets and then you batch your cleanup. So when you go to have a ball party, you don't have to have a ball party every five minutes or every 10 minutes or 15 minutes. You can have a, well, maybe every 15 minutes, but it's not going to be every five or 10 minutes. Those ball parties are going to be fewer and farther between. So there are a lot of ways batching plays out when it comes to training and baseball practices. But when you think about how batching works in your business and how batching works in your daily life, in your personal life, think about batching when you go out there to design a practice to make it more efficient and more productive. What can you put together? What drills can you put together? What parts of practice can be batched together? What things can be batched to be faster and more efficient and more effective? What are some steps you can take out if it's a step that could be coupled with another step later or another practice thing later? So it's more of a a paradigm shift, an operating system shift more than anything. So I want to throw that out there. Batching is something that we do every day of our lives. We do it all the time. And it's just something I think in baseball coaching, when we can batch things together at our training, our practices, it can definitely save us a few minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes of practice time every practice. And that adds up to hours during the course of a season, which is a lot of time, especially if you're using those hours super wisely. All right, we'll get into batching. I'll give you more examples as we move forward through the course of the season and then the preseason here in the off season as we get to the, the regular baseball season come spring. I'll talk more about specific examples of batching, but it starts to make you think, hey, what can I batch? What can I put together? And what things can I batch together moving forward? So we talked about in part one, a recommendation, Zen Golf. Go read the book, Zen Golf, I'm telling you. Um, and I've heard a lot of great things about Sean Green's book, The Way of Baseball. Anything that's Zen related, in my opinion, is probably very likely to hit the nail on the head when it comes to the mental game. A lot 
of the mental game books in baseball and sports are a lot of the same wisdom kind of regurgitated, kind of um, repackaged and repurposed back and put back out there in content. Now, while it's still good, it doesn't get to the root of a lot of the mental stuff. And that really is kind of centered around the Zen approach. It's not the only approach out there, but the Zen approach has really been something that's thousands of years old and really hits the nail on the head. And when they can tie it into sports, and when I'm reading a book that's written by an author that understands the Zen approach, it's very likely that that is an outstanding book to learn about on the mental game. So Zen Golf, not only will it help you work with your pitchers and your hitters and your players, it's also going to make your golf game better. So go get that. We talked about an article that I read about the strikeouts and, oh, less strikeouts means they're swinging more defensively or they're not swinging as aggressively. That's not true, in my opinion, with less than two strikes. It's just better plate discipline. Better, not even better plate discipline, better pitch selection. See, plate discipline is something with less than two strikes should never be brought up. Strike zone discipline with less than two strikes should never be brought up. It's all about pitch selection and getting the hitter's pitch. And that zone is not the size of a little like we talked about. It's not the size of a softball. It's probably the size of a big beach ball, maybe a small hula hoop. But it's definitely not the size of the whole strike zone with less than two strikes, unless you're Mookie Betts. With that said, I think when you hear or read or listen to stuff when the playoffs are going on, you read these articles about teams striking out less, be careful. A lot of times or most of the time, it's because their pitch selection is better. It's not because they're swinging with a more defensive swing. Absolutely believe with less than two strikes, hitters should not get cheated. You're trying to drive the ball and you got to swing hard. Now with two strikes, you're swinging as hard as you can, but sometimes those swings are going to get slowed down or shortened up because of the pitch and you do got to put it in play with less than two strikes. But with two strikes, it should not be a default protective swing. It should go to a protective swing with two strikes when the pitch dictates that it should be a protective swing. All right, because there's a lot of cookies thrown up there, a lot of meatballs thrown up there with two strikes and you don't want to put the ball in play when he throws you a meatball with two strikes. All right, then you just wasted a massive opportunity to drive a double in the gap and score runs or get yourself on second and then get driven in. All right, next week, we're getting the ingredient eight of the drill mastery guide, the last ingredient, part eight, the eighth ingredient to building elite drills, optimal drills. So we'll get to that next week. You don't want to miss that. This has been Coach Bo with 8020 Baseball. Thank you guys so much for your time. Take care of your health. Take care of your family. Take this out there, this information, and make the baseball community a better place. Thank you, coaches, for all your time and all your energy and what you're doing. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.